You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. We're going to be looking at the, the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. And I always hate prefacing a message, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is this, is that I understand that there's so much we could mine from this story and that really a series could be done from it, but I only am going to be here for one evening. And so there's going to be much that, that is left out, but what we will look at tonight is we're going to, you're, I'm going to take you through what I do, and that is when I, when I approach scriptures, I ask it a lot of questions, why? Why this? Why them? And in asking these questions and going to the scriptures with the, to look for the answers, we see things that God has stored up in there for us, sometimes corrections and many times encouragement but we always see Christ. And so if you would join me, let's look at Matthew 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8, and I will send you home with homework. You can also see uh, Mark and Luke's account, and um, I suggest you do that tonight. Look at how they uh, give account of the exact same thing which we're going to be looking at tonight. So Matthew 17, starting in verse 1, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James, and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And this ends our reading of the text this evening. One of the things that we, we need to realize is that this is the inspired Word of God. It is God-breathed, and, and that there, everything is recorded in the Bible. It is written on purpose and for a purpose. If you, if you start with that foundation, that there's nothing that is in here that is not meant for His glory and our good, and that it is in there on purpose, then it, Asking questions of the text leads us to very good and interesting places. And by that I mean this, is everything's intentional. So what right away when I approach this text on the Mount of Transfiguration is why? Why would Jesus choose to be transfigured? And why these three individuals? Why did he take these three men up to be witnesses? And if you look at the text and you look at what follows, I believe there's three main reasons. And just quickly, it's that so that they would trust him now. These three men, these three earthly witnesses that were brought up with Jesus to, to witness his transfiguration, the chief purpose was so that they believe him now that what he says is indeed the word of God, that he is the son of God. But it wasn't just so that they would believe him now, it was so that they would believe him later. 
because these men were going to, in short order, witness their Savior be beaten, will be imprisoned, be beaten, be crucified, and be buried. So they wanted them, he wanted them to believe them later so that they would have an expectancy to see him again. But there's a third reason. There's a third reason why there's these three witnesses, and that is this, so that they might bear witness, that they would bear witness of the events that took place on that mountain in order so that we too, you and I, and those that would come after them, might trust Jesus now and wait for him later. In the same way that, that he took those three disciples up so that they would believe him now and wait for him later, those witnesses testify to us so that we believe him now in the land of the living and will wait to either his soon coming return or our homecoming to be with him. And the reason why there's three is the Bible says this, in the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every case be established. So Peter, James, and John are the earthly witnesses to testify to the disciples back then and testify to us today to believe him now and to wait for him later. But it wasn't just three earthly, uh, earthly witnesses. We also see that there was three heavenly witnesses. Can you say three heavenly witnesses? Elijah, Moses, and the Father. So upon that mountain, there's, you have your earthly witnesses and you have your heavenly witnesses all testifying so that we would believe Christ now and, of course, wait for him later. If we look at the text, let's continue on verse 2, and it says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. In Mark, it describes it slightly different. I know I gave you homework, but I'm going to ruin it for you just a little bit. And that is this. He, he describes it slightly different. He, he describes it as clothes were radiant and intensely white, so much so that, that there was no bleach on earth that could ever make them that white. This word transformed in verse 2 is from the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3.18 to describe how you and I are transformed into the image of Christ. Where he says, And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And in both of those instances, this word refers to a change of form. We are transformed into the image of Christ. We begin to take on a new form. That is, a new life of Christ begins to transform the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, the way we worship. Wasn't that true for you when Christ got hold of you, when Christ saved you and took you out of the world, that be, he began to transform the way you think, the way you feel, the way you believe, the way you act, and for sure the way you worship. Because up until that point, I guarantee you, you're, the God you worship is the one that faces you in the mirror every morning. Because that is the dominant God of our society. But Paul also uses this same word in Romans 12 too to talk about how we must not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of our mind. And so if you take these three scriptures and that shows us what transformation looks like for us and what it means for us as children of God, what does it mean for Jesus to be transformed, to be transfigured? And sometimes the best way to approach and answer that is to begin by explaining what it doesn't mean. It's this, this transfiguration is not like a reflection. And what I mean by that is this. It's not like Moses. If you remember in the Old Testament when Moses went up on the mountain and he was speaking with the Lord and in the presence of the Lord when he came down, the Bible describes his face shone. Very much like it spoke about Jesus, uh, that he, his appearance and his clothing changed and it was transfigured before him. Moses' face shone in a similar way. But what we know about that shine and that glory, that glow, is that over time it faded away because it was simply a reflection, like a, a mirror. It wasn't produced by Moses, but it was a reflection of Moses. Moses reflecting God's glory. So that's not what it's getting at. It's also not like Halloween masks or masks that uh, at our home we have a... a I hate to call it a tickle trunk. That would tell my age, Mr. Dress-Up. But we have a trunk full of clothing and masks, and the kids will put them on and, of course, pretend to be who someone else with the mask, the beard, the wig, whatever the case may be. And it's, it's not like that. It's not like it's a, a mask that makes you appear different and then to pull off the mask to reveal who you really are. That's not what it's like at all. It's more like a veil. It's a veil being removed, and, and we don't really see a lot of veils. It used to be customary in times of times bygone where uh, a woman getting married would walk down the aisle and she'd have her face be covered, and we don't do that now because they spend so much money and hours putting that makeup on, they want everyone to see it. But back then, they would have veils on, and, and, and she would come up, and the, and the ceremony would, would go through, and at the end of the vows, when the husband was about to kiss his bride, she would reveal what was underneath there the whole entire time. Which makes sense how Jacob could marry the wrong person. I could never figure that out until, oh, she was wearing a veil. But in any case, it's like a veil. It's a veil is removed to reveal what was there the entire time. It's it's that Christ is truly God and truly man. It's the hypostatic union. It's the big fancy word you can take home and use at the supper table. That he's, he's, he's not a mixture of a two, but he's truly God and truly man, all in one man, Jesus Christ. Without mixing and without dilution, Jesus is forever truly God and truly man, and the veil was removed at that moment so that those three witnesses could see and believe him now and wait for him later. Just so you know, the moment of conception is the moment that Jesus was truly God and truly man in flesh. It wasn't the moment he was born only reason I say that is because sometimes I don't I think I'm preaching to the choir here but when you deal with people that I do 
personhood is only attributed to, to after birth. And I'm letting you know that Christ was truly God and truly man at the moment of conception. Forever and always, for man and God joined together, making intercession for us to this day, seated at the right hand of the Father. This veil was removed so that the earthly witnesses and the heavenly witnesses might be able to give testimony to the deity and the glory of Christ. There's one thing I know for certain, and that is this, that every one of us in this room underestimates the glory of Christ. Every one of us. It, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you're mildly interested in Christ, opposed to Christ, you belong to Christ, you b believe in Christ, you've followed Christ your whole entire life. It doesn't matter if you're standing behind a pulpit and preaching about Christ. Every one of us underestimates the glory of Jesus Christ. If, you, if your understanding of Christ's divine glory was enlarged this evening, let me ask you this, how would that impact your life? How would it? When, when, when a minister stands up here and tries his best to, to describe to you how glorious and wonderful he is, does it change you? Does it impact you? Would it, would it excite your emotions? Would it transform maybe your worship? Would you worship differently? Would it impact the content and quality of your thoughts, the thoughts that you choose to entertain? What changes would you make? Would your comprehension of the magnitude of Christ's divine glory influence what you watch, what you listen to? Would it lead you to take that pet sin which you have been lovingly keeping and feeding and occasionally taking out and playing with and exercising? Would a never-expanding understanding of Christ's glory convince you to finally, once and for all, take that pet sin behind the barn and kill it, put it to death? My word to you tonight is do not underestimate the glory of Christ. And I know a sermon fails to convince or to convey his glory accurately or sufficiently. I, I'm, I'm going to fail you this evening. I, I will not be able to do it. And I know I don't see Christ as I should. And I can't make you see him. It takes a work of God to open our eyes. And so we just plead that God would show us more of his son because he is more glorious than you think. He is stronger, more tender, more merciful, more holy, more majestic, more mighty, more radiant, and more relevant. Jesus is purer, better, stronger, higher, deeper, brighter, sweeter than you could possibly imagine or that any of us could ever conceive. And so allow this revelation tonight to impact you. And allow the revelation of Christ's divine glory to inform and transform you as you walk out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let's look back at our text. Verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, 
It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Absolute panic. Bewilderment in the presence of God. We don't often think of that. Part of, part of the problem with the church, with Christianity today, is you have so few people who imagine God to be a jaw-dropping, hands on your head, fall on your face, I am totally freaked out kind of God. Most of us, if we think of experiencing God, encountering God, worshiping God, we think of nice, warm, fuzzy. And if someone were narrating our encounters with God the same way that Matthew's narrating theirs, if they were to narrate our encounters with God, it wouldn't say, and they were terrified. It, would, it might say, and they were a bit interested, and, or they were bored, or they were really looking forward to supper. That happens a lot. That is probably what it would say. But Scripture tells us that they were terrified. They were terrified. Could it be that, that our lives are so filled with TikTok, Facebook, video games, doctor's visits, chores, and all the worries of life that come upon us or that we have come upon ourselves that we cannot see God. And when He is presented to us, He is too often presented to us as drab, nice, mildly helpful, slightly interesting, completely unintimidating, and certainly nothing to be afraid of. That's the churches I grew up in. Not so much the reform circle, but it still happened. In Mark's account, when they see Jesus unveiled, they were terrified. And this is Jesus, meek and mild, that they were afraid of. So Mark focuses on the minute they saw Jesus, they were terrified. In Matthew, the, you hear the voice or see the cloud, they were terrified. In Matthew and Luke, they mention the terror when they hear the Father's voice or experience the cloud of His presence. So really, if you take all three accounts together, it's the whole experience as Christ is revealed before their eyes from beginning to end is terrifying. This is our God. And so 30 years later, Peter recalls this event and makes mention of it. He uses this event as a talking point, and the purpose of this talking point is so that people would not think too lightly of Jesus. He says this in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
30 years later, he's still telling the story. This is how awesome and glorious our God is. But back to our text. Like I said, there are many things that I glossed over. We just asked a few questions and answered why why three witnesses? Well, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word's established. Why these three men? Well, so that so that they would believe him now and wait for him later, but not only that, so that we who would come after them would believe Christ now and wait for him later. And the three heavenly witnesses saying the exact same thing, revealing Christ to be truly God and truly man. Many things we could have said and spent more time with and teased out wonderful truths which have been stored up in there for us. However, in the time remaining with us this evening, I want to focus on our two heavenly witnesses. I just want to focus on them for a little bit. Moses and Elijah. The, there's a third one, that's the father. But I'm going to focus on Moses and Elijah, who came down and spoke directly with our Savior. And if you want to know what they're talking about, you'll go do your homework. Our account tonight in Matthew doesn't say. But in one of the other accounts, it tells you exactly what they're talking about if you're curious. But since I was young, I used to always wonder why Moses and Elijah, why those two in particular? And, and you can go to the commentaries, and they, all, they basically say one of two things. A lot of commentaries say this. They say, well, on the one hand, Moses and Elijah, they're both deliverers. They're both examples of men who are used by God to deliver the people of God out of bondage. You know, Moses delivered Israel from the slavery of Egypt. We know those story. We know the story well. And Elijah, he delivered Israel from the false gods of Baal worship. And we also know those stories as well. And both of these deliverers point to Christ being the greater deliverer. And that is why these two men were chosen, or these two heavenly witnesses are chosen to speak with Christ and to be revealed to the earthly witnesses on the mountain. And that is true. Probably it is possible. Other commentaries say this, and that is that Moses, of course, is a great lawgiver, and Elijah is the prototypical uh, figure among the prophets. And so having, having Moses and Elijah on the mountain is the summation of the law and the prophets of whom, of course, Christ is the fulfillment of both. And so it's a nice way of having the Word incarnate speak to those who represent the law and the prophets. And that, too, makes sense and is very much plausible. You might, you might be saying to yourself, why are you saying plausible and might? Because it doesn't tell us in Scripture. But I want to take you to a third, or mention a third that, that from a young boy I thought about, and I thought, okay, well, this is also a reason, just as plausible, and I think will be encouraging for us tonight. And as that these two men, these two men, Moses and Elijah, if you noticed that we began by um, 
our scripture reading for the night was, was both accounts, including Moses and Elijah. These men had an uncommon encounter, a unique encounter with God. Moses, if you recall our scripture reading earlier, he wanted to see God's glory. He wanted to see God's face. But he couldn't. We know from scripture that it would have killed him. It's the weakness of his flesh made it impossible for him. So although Moses had a desire to see God's glory, he too, who was a redeemer, was in need of his own redeemer. He couldn't look into the face of God. He had to be hidden behind a rock and covered, and only when the Lord has passed by could he see his backside. But then you have Elijah. He, too, had a unique and special encounter with God. His being different. It was after, of course, he, he this great triumphant battle against the, the prophets of Baal, and God shows up mightily. He, he has the prophets, you know, hey, you set your sacrifice there, and I'll set my sacrifice here, and whoever's God answers with fire, he's the one we shall serve, and he makes it hard. He pours water all over his. They, he lets Baal go, the prophets of Baal go first, and what do they do? They, they cut themselves, they dance, they sing, they pray, they go all day long. And then Elijah praise to the one true and living God and, and our God answers with fire and, and they're defeated and the prophets are killed and then in fear he runs off and hides in a cave and where we, we read it at that point where he's in the cave and God says to him this I'm going to read it to you again and he said go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore them tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak. He covered his face and went out and stood at the entrance of a cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What was Elijah doing? He was hiding his face because of fear and shame. He was keenly aware of his sin and God's terrifying holiness. And so what did he do? He hid his face. He went to go talk with God and he covered his face, wrapped it with a cloak, hiding himself from, from God's glory. So here you have one man who desires to see God's glory, but because of the weakness of his frail and sinful flesh, he can't. The Redeemer in need of his own Redeemer. And then you have another over here who's terrified to see God's glory because he's so keenly aware, I am a sinner and I cannot stand before a holy God. But in this moment, both of these two men with unveiled faces look upon the face of God Christ 
And so for me, from a young boy, I would look and say, that's the reason. That's why it's Moses, and that's why it's Elijah. Moses, who so desired to see the glory of God and to see the face of God, and he got his greatest desire, looking at Christ. And Elijah, who was so terrified, he had to cover his face and wrap it up in a cloth so that he would see or wouldn't be seen, is now standing in front of Christ with an unveiled face. Both of these men, men in this moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, acting as heavenly witnesses, both get to look upon the face of God, uncovered. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you desire to see God's glory, then look to the face of Christ. If you are racked with fear and shame, look to the face of Christ and see his glory. Jesus Christ laid aside his glory when he came to earth. And because of his finished work upon the cross, he has received back his glory and now shares it with us. And do you remember what his Christ's priest, priestly prayer in John 17, 22? He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. When we surrender ourselves to God, he will transfigure our minds. And as we yield to the Spirit of God, he changes, he transfigures us from one glory to another. And as we look into the Word of God, we see the Son of God and are transfigured by the Spirit of God into the glory of God. I want you to be encouraged tonight. I know I, I, I told you none of us truly understand how glorious God is. We underestimate it and that, that no one can really, even in a sermon, come close to trying to explain it. All, I, all we can do is pray that God would reveal more of his son to us so that we too, like Moses, or we too, like Elijah, could see him face to face with no fear of death because of our weak flesh and no fear because of that ever-present knowledge that we are sinners. And he is so incredibly holy. But like Moses and Elijah, be able to stand and see him and look at his face. So I want to encourage you once again with what, what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that this is true for all those who are his children, that we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is our lot in life. This is, this is what we have to look forward to. To be able to stand blameless in front of our Savior and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest, the joy of your Lord. That is our lot in life. And what a glorious lot it is. Amen. Let us pray. 
Almighty and merciful Father, we readily confess that we have underestimated the glory of Christ. Your servant Moses reflected your divine glory, and Elijah proclaimed divine glory, but Christ has revealed divine glory to us. Help us to have a fuller understanding of your glory by revealing more of Christ to us. Give us the spirit of him who dwelt among men in great humility and was meek and lowly of heart. Let the same mind be in us which was also in him. And grant that being rooted and grounded in the mystery of the word made flesh, we may receive the power to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we all say, Amen. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.